Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Thanks for tuning in. Before we get started, I wanted to give a quick shout out to new Patreon supporters, Rochelle Kraus, Angie Engelbert, VY Bars, and Zachary Rowell. Thank you for your generosity. We really appreciate it. We're going to jump right into it. On our podcast today, our guest is a literary manager and producer who has almost 100 produced movies and TV series since 2010. Most recently, Creepshow on AMC Shutter Network, Netflix's 12 Forever, and Day of the Dead on Sci-Fi. He's also packaged and sold film and TV projects to nearly all of the major networks and studios in the industry. After a short stint as a literary agent, he was a partner at management and production firm Artists International before co-founding The Cartel, where he's currently CEO. He is Stan Spry. Thanks for joining us today, Stan. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the uh, very warm introduction. No, I mean, you have an incredible list of of credits and and work experience and history and so it's it's a pleasure to have you on we've had a lot of different literary agents and managers and separately producers and many managers also produce but you have an extensive credit list so it's going to be great to get into a lot of that with you today thanks man yeah we've been very fortunate in that we were able to uh to do both over the years and, and hope hope to uh, add to that list extensively over the years to come. Yeah. Uh, first off, before we get started in all that, I just wanted to ask how you're doing during the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. How's your family? Family's great. Uh, I am married with two dogs, no children. Um, we're good, man. We, we uh, keep very busy and, you know, work keeps me busy all day and um, keeps my mind off of things. And then we've been literally isolated for, I think, eight weeks now and um, only left the house occasionally to, you know, to take the dogs out or to drive our cars and make sure the battery doesn't die. But right. living in L.A. has been kind of great because you can get everything delivered to your doorstep. You know, it's like you go on, go online and get Instacart or another delivery service and they show up right to your door and uh, you don't really have to leave, which is kind of nice. In the few occasions you do, there's a lot less traffic. So that's also nice. It's <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Uh, and you, you're able to work from home, uh, which is great. How's business going, both in terms of for your clients and in terms of all, you know, whatever projects you're juggling at the moment? It's interesting. Um, the management side of the business is, is going very well. Um, uh, most of our writer clients are working. Um, you know, we, we have a big animation division of the company as well. And all of our artists are working right now, literally 100 percent um, staffed. And, uh, you know, the, the directors are obviously not getting any work, but the industry on that side, it seems like a lot of people are kind of starting up mini writers rooms and doing some development. So buying some scripts and um, trying to get ready for when things can go back into production. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, this time of year is actually staffing season for the big four broadcasters. But it's a little weird because no pilots have actually been shot. So staffing season is a little bit in, in flux. And that's this time of year, obviously, when you go out and try to get your clients jobs on broadcast shows. Um, and then the, the production side of the company, we were okay because we had a lot of stuff that was in post-production or that we had delivered that we've got revenues coming in on and um, that had been, been sold. But the actual physical production is shut down. So we've had to – Creepshow, for instance, we were doing season – we were about to start shooting season two. Um, and it was the Friday before – all the shutdown happened. We were supposed to start shooting on Monday for season two. And uh, we pulled the plug on Friday and kind of pushed that until wow. things get safe. Day of the Dead, which is our show for um, sci-fi, 
which is supposed to start shooting January or July 1st. We don't know exactly when that's going to shoot. We're going to be shooting in Vancouver, so we're hoping that we can shoot July and August. Um, and then our movie business, we had to push. So far, we've had to push about eight movies, um, three small independent ones, a couple of Hallmark movies we were doing, and then two bigger budget um, independent movies. But, um, you know, for that side of the company, we've been developing and still working on scripts, still trying to get material ready, still trying to sell material and package material. So we're keeping busy um, and just hope that the, the virus goes away sooner than later or we figure out a way to work around it. And I, I heard that, and you can obviously, being uh, actually boots on the ground, can answer this question hopefully uh, better than I can, but I've heard that development actually is is actively going specifically because uh, development execs and uh, directors and people have a lot more time to read now. Is that actually the case? Yeah, I think so. Um, on the television side, I feel like certain networks are buying. Um, Netflix, if you have a great script and a great package, is, is kind of buying, I think, the streamers. Um, the broadcasters, the big four, aren't really actively buying right now. I think they're trying to figure out what they're what their um, year is going to look like in terms of shows, like what they're going to pick up and what they're going to have to, you know, what kind of pilots they're going to take to series. Um, I wouldn't say it's like a heavy buying season right now because I think everyone's kind of like what's, what's actually going to happen. But yeah, people are working on scripts they've already bought to try to get those into shape. And there, there are certainly some places that are buying. If you've got something that's competitive, um, you know, we've taken out several things. We sold something to Nickelodeon last week. Um, we have competitive offers on another show that we just took out um, two weeks ago and, and trying to figure out which network we're going to go with. So people are buying. It's not super active. Uh, like I think some people have made it out to be, but if you have a great project, it, then it'll cut through and I think people will, will uh, take notice of it. The movie side is also kind of that way. Like we've taken out a couple of pitches, but not gone into studios yet. Um, mostly we've been working on packaging them. So going out to other production companies to partner with, or going out to actors or directors to try to get a package put together. And how do you see this sort of playing out? Like, when do you think this will return to a, a semblance of normalcy? Or is this sort of the new normal for the foreseeable future of not being able to shoot very much or, yeah. or, or uh, you know, until we can get a vaccine kind of thing? I think... I'm definitely not a, an expert in any of that, but I've, I've had conversations with my buddy who runs Sony TV, my mm. friend of Warner Brothers, and kind of, and the heads of Hallmark, we do a lot of business, but kind of the feeling is certain things will start shooting in July. Probably smaller movies, um, smaller independent productions will start shooting, and it, and it seems like Canada's probably going to be uh, up and running before some of the places in the States. Oh. Um, I do think that some places outside of LA will probably start shooting a little bit sooner. Um, you know, our hope is that we can start shooting creep show in Ju June or July, um, which shoots down in, in Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, the, the physical production stuff is going to be difficult for the next six months. I don't think it's going to be impossible. There's a lot of talk amongst uh, different studio heads and producers trying to figure out, what kind of protocols to put into place. So making sure you take everybody's temperature, make sure everybody's tested. If somebody has to fly in, they have to be quarantined before they can come to set, you know, keeping social distancing on set, making sure everybody wears a mask and 
um, has sanitizer at all times and is wearing gloves, making sure that your actors uh, each have their own hair and makeup brushes that they don't share with anybody else, make sure that the clothes are cleaned every night and disinfected. So things like that. Um, I think there'll be less travel for productions. Um, but, you know, like we're looking at doing a couple of things in Canada just with Canadian actors to get started. And then hopefully once things die down, we can start working with flying American actors in. And then our, our, new, our L.A. business will hopefully start up in uh, July. I, I, we'll see. I mean, I really don't know the answer. I'm a little more optimistic than some people, but right. people have to work. People need content. Um, and the world eventually is going to have to go back to some type of normal. Right. And for those newer and emerging writers, how does this sort of affect them in terms of them wanting to secure representation, them wanting to try to get a script in the hands of a production company or a producer or take meetings with people? How does this affect them? Um, well, meetings are interesting because all meetings now are happening via Zoom or right. Skype, Microsoft Teams, or a lot of the different studios and networks have their own in-house stuff, um, you know, different different video conferencing things. So it's interesting. I mean, if you're trying to break into television staffing right now, it's mm -hmm. probably the easiest time to do that. But certainly people are buying stuff from younger voices. I, I heard from a friend of mine over at Netflix um, last week that they're kind of taking the approach that there's not enough experienced um, talent to do the amount of shows that we want to do. So they're really leaning towards giving younger writers an opportunity. Oh. You know, so looking at stuff, they're buying things that are really great scripts, and then they'll try to package it with a more experienced writer to shepherd it and, and help oversee the physical production in the writer's room. So I, at the end of the day, I believe, I, I believe great content is great content. And if a writer writes a great script, whether it's TV or feature, it's going to cut through the clutter. Um, and that, that's really what it's all about. So I don't think, I don't think if you're a writer right now, you have to panic and say, I'm never going to get my break. I think it's just, if you've got something great and you've really done a great job on a script, it's, it's going to cut through and your opportunity will come regardless of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah. Where are you from originally and what inspired you to want to work in the entertainment industry? Um, I am originally from a small town in Virginia. Uh, it's called Cumberland, and the nearest actual town was Farmville, Virginia, and I went to school there. Um, I went to uh, Virginia Tech for college, and I was there for two years, and I came out to California to live with my great uncle for a summer and play in a couple of uh, college baseball leagues. So I stayed out with him, here with him for that summer, and I met one of his friends who was in the entertainment business, a woman named Wendy Clancy. Um, and I got recruited by a couple of teams in California. So I was like, screw it, I'll stay in California and, and play baseball out here and figure out what I want to do with my life. And I played in San Diego and I ended up hurting my shoulder and getting surgery on it. And at that point, I, I just had no idea what I wanted to do, but I had seen a couple of things in the entertainment industry. I fell in love with California. And, um, you know, I talked to Wendy and she gave me some great advice. And I realized at that point, I really wanted to try to try to make a path in the entertainment industry. So I transferred back to Virginia Tech and switched my major to communications um, with a concentration in um, broadcast, film, and uh, mass media with a minor in theater and um, English. Graduated and then came right back out here in 2000 with two of my buddies right after I graduated. And how did you get your start 
in the business? What was your first job and how did you get it? Uh, first thing I did was work for free for about um, six months. So I, I interned for a company called, uh, it was at the time called Burke's Akani. Then they changed their name to Guy Walks Into a Bar. Um, the biggest thing they did was a movie called Elf with, with Will Ferrell. And I was mm -hmm. an intern when they were doing that. Um, so I worked for them for free uh, three days a week while I worked at Kinko's from midnight till 8 a.m. Um, making copies and, and doing computer graphics and stuff for them. And then one of my friends who I moved out here with also was working at Kinko's. And he was making copies for a woman who, and he didn't know what they were. And he just saw like names on them, uh, like Clive Owen and, uh, gosh, who was the director? Carl Wai Wong. And I believe Guy Ritchie. And he's like, what, what is this? What are these? And she's like, oh, they're call sheets where I'm producing a series of short films and commercials for BMW. So my buddy Casey was like, oh, my buddy and I are trying to get into the industry. You know, we moved out here from uh, Virginia and uh, are trying to get into, you know, production. So she hired us both as production assistants. We worked on uh, those commercials for, I want to say, about three months because they were long. They were really expensive. BMW made these things. They were called, um, I can't remember what they were called, actually, but Clive Owen starred as, like, this spy, and they'd have, like, little mini stories, and they'd have these A-list directors direct them. And uh, Casey and I worked on those, and that was kind of my foray into the entertainment business. From there, I got a bunch of other jobs as production assistant, worked on movies like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and... Um, Spider-Man, the original one, and um, what else? S Club 7 was a TV show I worked on. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. Uh, worked as assistant director on a couple of things. The coolest thing I worked on was a, a skateboard video with Spike Jones and Mike D from the Beastie Boys called Very Keep Your Eyes Open. Very uh, cool. Yeah, it was awesome. For a kid from a farm in Virginia, it was, uh, it was really just like living my dream. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, and then... I didn't love the uh, production lifestyle. I didn't like the freelance lifestyle. So I didn't, I, I kind of wanted to figure out what I wanted to do within the industry. Um, so I ended up moving back to Virginia for about a year. Um, worked and I was trying to save some money because it's expensive to live in California. So I moved back to Virginia and worked at, I did three jobs. I worked at TGI Fridays, a, uh, a fine dining restaurant, and I worked the, uh, for the local news in Richmond, Virginia saved up some money and moved back out here about a year after that. So you've always been the type to juggle a lot of different things, which probably helps as a producer and manager. Yeah, I think so, man. Um, <laughs> I think, I think I was undiagnosed ADD to be honest with you. Like when I was in school, I was bored out of my mind. I wasn't particularly great at school. I wasn't bad at school either, but um, I just, I was so bored. I was, I, I would draw and doodle in class as opposed to paying attention. And I hated doing schoolwork. So um, I think, yeah, I think I have undiagnosed ADD, which has definitely helped me to be able to do a multiple or multitude of things in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. Now, the cartel is a management company and a production company. A lot of them are, but many tend to skew towards management. And with the occasional credit, you guys are, seem to be very active at both. So I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you guys, um, ask you, how does that sort of work with you? How do you divide your time and separate your focus between your clients and your projects and vice versa? Um, I think to answer that, I kind of need to give a, a bigger overview of the company. Yeah. Um, and then I can answer kind of how I personally deal with it. So the company, the cartel, is actually three separate companies. Um, there's Cartel Entertainment. 
of which I, I co-own with my partner, Jeff Holland, who founded the cartel with me. That company is a management company, and it's also a more traditional production company. So, you know, we represent writers, directors, producers, production companies, animators, board artists, you know, kind of anybody except for actors in, in the entertainment business. We represent them. We package their content. We sell their content. We get them shows or we get them jobs. Um, and uh, sometimes we finance for them. And sometimes we produce with our clients on that side of the company, but sometimes we produce outside of uh, our clients because our clients – Fortunately, knock on wood, are, are very busy and, and extremely successful. So most of them are working, and, and a lot of them have four or five projects they're working on at any given time. So we, we oftentimes will find a piece of IP or develop something within that company and then go outside of our own clientele to, to put something together. Um, and then we have Cartel Pictures. I co-own Cartel Pictures with a different uh, partner, Eric Woods. Eric and I uh, founded the Cartel, Cartel Pictures about two years, after, or maybe a year after I founded Cartel Entertainment with Jeff, um, we started as Pulsar Pictures, and that was um, because I had set up a, a deal to do about five low-budget movies, and I needed somebody to come in and help, and I had made a movie with Eric, and I loved him, so it just made sense that we partnered together and built Cartel Pictures out. So Eric and I produce and finance a ton of content. We have output deals for TV movies at places like Hallmark, um, we, we make a ton of independent films every year. Uh, we also finance content. Those two companies oftentimes will work together. So sometimes Cartel Pictures will hire Cartel Entertainment's clients to, uh, to write a movie or direct a movie. Sometimes Cartel Entertainment will set something up and then Cartel Pictures will come in and be the physical production service company for the Cartel Entertainment project and oftentimes finance the Cartel Entertainment project. Sometimes they work separately. Sometimes they work together. Um, and, and we work with everybody else in town, too. So if we sell a show to Netflix, Netflix might be like, okay, we don't want you guys to be the studio and the finance company, but you can be non-writing, non-writing executive producers on it. So that's fine. You know, we, we don't have to be the studio and everything. Then we also have another company which is called Cartel Enterprises, which I co-own with Eric. Um, and that is a real estate holding company. We own a um, uh, four-building studio complex in the heart of Hollywood right by Netflix, right by um, Paramount. And, you know, we, we, that's where we house our company. And um, we also have a stage here. We also have post-production facilities there. So that's kind of the structure of the companies as a whole. Um, how I bifurcate my time is, is really just where it's needed in any given moment. I'm, I, I, I need to stay busy just for my own psyche. Like, I have to keep busy at all times. So always, first and foremost, like, I focus on my clients and making sure that they're happy and working. But I also don't take on too many clients. At this point in my career, I'm very fortunate in that the people I represent have become very successful. And my job is to help continue their success and make sure that they're, uh, you know, provided the opportunities they want to help their career goals come true. Um, so because of that, I, I find myself having a lot of time to develop and, and focus on some production stuff. But I'm not the kind of guy who really likes to go and sit on a set because I'm so uh, ADD. We have a lot of people who work for us. So we have a great head of development on Cartel Entertainment side. We have multiple development people on Cartel Picture side. We have a head of production on Cartel Picture side who oversees all of our physical production stuff, budgeting, scheduling, hiring local producers, UPMs. We have a head of post-production on the Cartel Picture side who oversees all of our post-production. We have a full team working underneath her. Um, I have a COO on, on Cartel Picture side who handles a lot of our finance stuff and our books and, and helping us set up deals. Um, 
And then on the cartel entertainment side, I, I think I think we have the greatest literary managers in, in town, like Evan Corday, Jeff Holland, Jeff Silverman, John Tomko, Bradford Brickett, Matthew Ellis, Corey Ackerman, um, Audrey Knox, uh, Kate Brogdon. These are these are managers who just, you know, been great at other things they've done, you know, worked as agents or worked as managers of other companies. And they just have terrific taste and they work with terrific clients. So because of that and because the people who work at the cartel on all sides are so amazing what they do, it affords me a lot of opportunity to do multiple things and, and uh, kind of break my focus up a little bit. I feel like that was a really long-winded way of, of answering that question. I'm sorry, but hopefully that, uh, that got to what you were trying to trying to get an answer to. Absolutely. No, it definitely sounds like you've got your hands full. You definitely have that sort of multiple things, multiple juggling, multiple balls, I should say, in the air that you're juggling at the same time. Part yeah. of that ADD you were talking about, but that's uh, exactly. that's very cool. And it's all, what, what do they call it, vertical integration or something like that? Yeah. Synergy? Yeah, we tried, we tried, and that was kind of the idea when we founded the company. It was like, let's start with the clientele and build that up, and then let's have a production arm as well, but also do what most management companies don't do, which is actually physically produce. A lot of managers out there just attach themselves as non-writing executive producers, and a lot of those people are my friends. I, there's nothing wrong with that. I have nothing like nothing negative to say about that, but we also offer, uh, offer the full-service physical production. We own stages. We own tons of equipment. We have post-production. We literally can take a movie from concept to delivery without an outside without an outside presence. We can handle soup to nuts production. And I don't think there's another production company in town that actually can do that. And if there is, I, I please forgive me for, for not knowing that. Oh, I've, I've never heard of one being able to do that either. I mean, you talk about full service. Oh, it's a full service agency because they have above the line talent. You can get an actor, you can get a director and writer all together and packaged Do but you actually have sound stages and equipment. And so it's a, that's kind yeah. of a unique situation. That's very cool. Yeah, and look, I mean, honestly, I, I really, I can't take credit for that. I, I've got great partners who, who are as ambitious as I am and who are smarter than I am, who have afforded me this opportunity to help build a, a company that I love like a child. I'm probably not like a child, but I'm sure parents would hate me to say that, but I love, <laughs> I love it like my child. What, uh, what type of, of material does the cartel gravitate towards? Any specific genres, or are you genre neutral? Uh, what kind of budget range do you guys are primarily you work talk, in? I guess it depends on, on what you're asking. Like, are you asking for the physical production arm of the company? Are you asking for the management side, which also does production? Um, More along the lines of, I guess, product producing of shows. Not necessarily the actual physical production, because I'm sure you can do whatever it is you need to. Uh, and client-wise, I'm sure you have clients that work in all areas. But in terms of those projects, you decide to take on, produce, possibly finance yourself, or you know, secure financing for those types of projects that you're actually sure. producing. So, I, uh, that I'll answer that kind of by splitting up the companies again. Mm -hmm. Cartel Entertainment, um, the management production arm, kind of looks for stuff we 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 sell to everybody and produce with everybody. So. Right now, we have a pilot uh, at at Fox. We have uh, we had a pilot at NBC this year with Mila Kunis. Um, we just had something up at HBO that hasn't been announced. Um, we have you know two things at Sci-Fi. One that's going straight to series. We have the AMC Shutter thing. Um, something at TBS. We just look for something that we we feel is somewhat unique, 
and that fits the appetite for what the buyers and distributors are looking for. So, you know, one of the great things about having a management company is that we're constantly talking to every buyer in town about our clients and trying to get them jobs. But we're also finding out what their mandates are. So we, you know, we talk to ABC, we talk to Showtime, we talk to Netflix daily, finding out what their revolving needs are. And our heads of development are always looking for stuff to sell to them and to package for them. I would say that side of the company tends to gravitate towards IP-based um, things. So like one of the things we've got stuff is sci-fi is based off of a video game. We've got stuff based off of comic books. Creep shows obviously based off of an old movie. Um, Day of the Dead is based off of an old movie. So we, you know, the thing we sold to Mila Kunis was based off of a book. The thing we sold to Fox as a pilot is based off of an uh, article that we got the rights to. So for, for that side of the company, we're just looking for unique articles and some types of IP. Um, the production side of the company that, that focuses more on feature films, um, we're just looking for great scripts, to be honest with you. We're not really in the business of doing a lot of development. So for that company, like one of the things we're always looking for is mid-level action movies. So stuff that could be put together $10 million and below that we could find a great piece of talent to attach to it, um, you know, both a director and a star. Uh, we're always looking for thrillers. Um, horror movies, we've, we've done pretty well with horror. We did Jeepers Creepers 3 a couple of years ago. We have another one coming out uh, that we just did for Warner Brothers. I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but that should be releasing in uh, in December sometime. So we, we like horrors. Uh, the tougher things for the movie side, we don't tend to do a lot of comedy. And the reason for that is because comedy doesn't translate into international markets mm. like the other shows do. Um, we don't tend to do a ton of straight drama, just like, you know, regular drama. But with that said, we do have two things in development that are drama projects right now with some uh, pretty amazing cast attached to it. Um, really just great material, man. We, we as a production and finance company can probably finance up to about $20 million by ourselves. And that's, and when I say by, by ourselves, that means without having to bring a studio on board, we have credit facilities and, and, and fund facilities and banks that we work with where we can put the money together if the package is right. So if you're looking at a $20 million movie, you've got to have the right director on board who, who drives sales and who distributors want. You've got to have the right cast on board. It's got to be the right genre for, for that cast. Um, and then anything above that, we partner with So we can go out and sell something to 20th or to Sony and we'll be a production partner on it. We can also pull some gap financing um, based off some of our relationships. So uh, I, I wish I could say that we like specialize in one thing, but truly we, we kind of want to do a little bit of everything. You know, we probably are best known, the production side is probably best known for our Hallmark movies, of which we do about 10 a year. We also do a ton of independent thrillers, up to about 20 of those a year. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, and then, then you know, we're trying to ramp that up. This year our goal was to do a total of 35 productions. Um, that has obviously uh, been slowed down due to the, the coronavirus, but hopefully when things go back to normal, we'll, we'll try to ramp that up again and um, focus on that kind of, I want to try, try and meet those numbers. And do you mostly produce unproduced scripts? Like, do you buy scripts for these 20 independent thrillers that you have every year and 10 Hallmark films? Is it something that's developed in-house with clients? Or is it something like, for especially for thrillers and horror films, uh, do you buy films at like AFM and things like that? We don't tend to buy, we don't buy completed films. We'll, okay. 
We do occasionally buy scripts. A lot of the smaller independent thrillers are developed with our, our development team in-house. We have, um, you know, because we're also a management company, we work with every agency in town. We work with other management companies. So we're also always getting content from, you know, outside representatives who are pitching us stuff. So, yes, we, we always um, we buy stuff. We also have our head of development. And my partner, Eric, on the production side is always working on developing new scripts with a, with a pretty solid stable of 15 to 20 writers that we work with on a regular basis. Um, and then, you know, our clients, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a great problem to have. <laughs> we, we can't even afford some of our clients' scripts anymore because they've become so successful. Hmm. So when they have something, certainly we'll take a look at it. But one of our philosophies on the management side has always been, from the start, when Jeff and I sat down and decided how we wanted to build the company, it has always been to do what's right for the client's project and never insert ourselves into a client's project if we're not adding value. So if a client has a script and, and a pitch and wants to take it out and Jerry Bruckheimer wants to do it, we're not Jerry Bruckheimer. And we have no delusions that we're nearly as capable or competent or as powerful as Jerry. So we would be like, yes, let's get this set up. We'll take our 10% and be super stoked and, and be happy about that. However, if there's a project we take out, Maybe it doesn't sell. Maybe we don't get Bruckheimer or Berlanti on board for it. Maybe we come on board and we can step up and try to help get the client's project made. So on the management side of stuff, we've always looked at ourselves as added value in that sense and trying to do what's best for each individual project. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I took a little bit of a tangent there, but I think that's to say that sometimes we do do our, we will work with our clients in terms of buying their scripts, but generally we take it and try to get it set up with the best buyer and the best partners out there. Sometimes that is us, oftentimes it's not us. Um, so I, yeah, but in terms of genres and stuff we wanna set up, like we, we're looking for everything. Um, the one thing I would say we don't want is super broad comedy. Um, but other than that, we're kinda of wide open. Gotcha. Would you say you find more clients through producing or more, you pro, you f do more producing through your clients. And what I mean by that is, do you would you think you find more clients through submissions to your uh, production company, and like the writer, maybe sign the writer if they don't have representation, or is it something where you are actively, like you had said, working with your clients to produce their material and, until the point comes where you either decide to go out wide with it and see what else you can find and maybe get a Bruckheimer attached. And if not, then you can pursue other avenues, which do you think happens more frequently? I think in terms of, of us signing clients, mm -hmm. we don't really sign a lot of clients from our production arm. And, gotcha. and that's partially intentional because we don't want other agencies or man or other management companies thinking if they send a client to the cartel for a movie or a TV show, we're going to try to poach their clients. Like one of the beautiful things about being a manager is there's there's this kind of unspoken respect and law between managers, which is you don't poach each other's clients. Um, and it's one of the things I love about being a manager versus being an agent. The agency world is, you know, it, it, they're called sharks for a reason. They do poach each other's clients. And when I was an agent, I poached clients and people poached my clients, and I, I hated that. Um, so we tend not to find clients through our productions nor through our shows. Uh, I just don't think it would be an ethical thing for us to do. Um, and one of the, you know, foundations of our company when we started is to try to always be ethical and operate with integrity. Um, and 
in terms of where we do get our clients from, I, I think because our company has grown and because uh, of the success of our existing clients, um, I, I think we tend to get a lot of our clients from our other clients. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, Joe Henderson, who's, who's one of my showrunner clients, just the other day referred to me another upper level client who I've known through him for years um, who had left his manager and was looking to sign somewhere else. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to read him and meet with him in, you know, in an official capacity and we ended up signing him. But we, I, I think most of our, our clients come that way. So through internal client referrals, we also get a lot of incoming calls from um, executives. And we, you know, before the COVID-19, we were always having lunches and breakfast every day, meeting with executives and on the studio and network side, meeting with other agents, meeting with attorneys. So a lot of our referrals, and actually most of them come that way, if not through existing clients, it's agents pitching us on clients to share with them and co-represent with them. It's, it's executives who think who have a friend who needs a manager. Um, it's attorneys who represent a writer who doesn't have an agent or a manager sending us clients. So that's, that's really how we um, get, I would say, 90, 95% of our clients um, is through, through referrals, whether it's internal or external. Mm -hmm. And what, assuming that it doesn't necessarily come from a referral, what do you look for in potential new clients? Like, assume a query comes in and, and knocks you out, knocks your socks off and you want to take a chance and look at the script and you read the writing. What do you look for in potential new clients other than being a great writer? Um, you know, to, to be honest, I personally don't take on outside um, referrals, but we do as a company. There are junior managers. There's managers sure. who are younger who, who, uh, who focus on that. And I would say what we look for, you know, a, a unique point of view is always important. Um, somebody who's got a different story, like like a, a different upbringing or has, has uh, you know, I, I could give you a million examples, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be enough. Um, and then just a unique voice. Um, somebody who, who writes differently, somebody who's, um, and obviously somebody who knows how to write. It, it is a skill. It is a trade. Like uh, somebody putting words on a page does not make them a writer. Somebody who understands story structure, character arcs, um, and, you know, uh, how, to, how to hit certain beats is, is important to us. But I say, you know, something that, that we all always kind of spark to is, is a unique idea, something that's high concept is always something that will grab our attention. Like, oh, my gosh, I've never heard that before. Um, and, and so that, that's always helpful. Um, if somebody's had previous credits or previous experience, that's always helpful as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't have like any one specific thing that we, we look for in a new writer in this climate. It's certainly, we, we, we absolutely want to empower diverse voices. We want to have female writers on our client list. Um, you know, people who come from, from different walks of life. I, I think that's important. The world is a, a very diverse place. And I think that's important in entertainment to um, showcase that and, and not not just be, you know, telling one point of view and one story, you know. Right. Is, that, is that a question? I feel, like I'm, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. No, Sorry. no, that's great. And it, it leads me to another question. Um, have you ever had to drop a client and why? Without yeah, getting to specifics, uh, we don't want to. Yeah, for sure, for sure, we have. Um, and look, we—I'd be lying if I said we hadn't been dropped by clients. We, we've been dropped by clients as well. Um, sometimes it just—you know—sometimes it runs its course. Um, 
sometimes, you know, there's uh, I don't know how to say it right, but like sometimes there's there's just it's just not a fit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for us, and me specifically, I I started the company because I wanted to work with people I love. Not just the people I founded the company with, but all the people who work at the cartel are my friends. I, I love these people, and and our clients. Our, our clients are people we are in my wedding. You know, they're people I hang out with. They're the people you want to work harder for somebody you care about and somebody who uh, cares about you. So, yeah, we've had to we've had to drop people for for personality reasons. We've had to drop people who sometimes just don't generate the work. You know, a writer specifically, they're their best asset is their ability to write something. So if somebody's not generating new work, it's hard for us to sell them as a writer, you know? So like if somebody hasn't written a new script in 10 years, you know, how am I supposed to reintroduce them to the town? How am I supposed to get them a job when I'm sending out the same stale material that they've been using for 10 years? Um, so generally those are the reasons that we'll have to part ways with, with clients. Um, not, you know, even the people that we've had to drop in the past, like I, I wish them all the best of luck and I really hope they're all successful and make a ton of money and, you know, flip us the bird and say like, haha, you idiots, you should have stuck with me, you know? Um, but, and then we've, we've been dropped as well sometimes because it's just not a, a, a love match. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just part of the business. You know, fortunately I, I feel like we've had some really long-term clients that have stayed with us for their entire careers and, We've discovered them, um, you know, and, and worked with them, and now they're they're making millions and millions of dollars. And it's it's the greatest feeling in the world helping somebody achieve their dreams and feed their families. And uh, yeah, so that's yeah. Again, I'm I'm not taking a tangent, but no, that's uh, great. You know, yeah, we have dropped clients for a multitude of reasons, and yes, we have been dropped for a multitude of reasons. We get asked a lot, what age is too late to start a screenwriting career and also how soon like at what age would you start to consider a writer as a potential client or is it all dependent on the material period whether the writer is 13 or whether the writer is 88 (laughs) i don't think i'd represent a 13 year old i (laughs) I have to be emancipated to be a writer but certainly there's look we do some business with snapchat and some of the digital places and if a 13-year-old sent me a great concept for a Snapchat show, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't take it to the network and see if we could set it up. So <laughs> um, I, I don't think there's anything such thing as too young or too old. Um, obviously, if you get a foot in the door at, at an earlier age, it's going to be easier for you. TV business especially because in TV, there's kind of a path to staffing success, right? If you if you come out here right after college or while you're in college or after high school and you get a writer's assistant job or a writer's PA job, then you kind of work your way up the ranks. You know, it's kind of like boot camp. Then after a couple of years, maybe you get your first staff writing job or you get into one of the programs at the studios. Um, and then you can work your way up to eventually become an executive producer. But with that said, I mean, if, if, if an 80-year-old writer came to me and had just a killer script, um, that we could we can maybe set it up. You know, it's like it might be more difficult to try to get an 80 year old writer a writer's assistant job. And I don't know any 80 year old who would actually want that job. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that people should be judged by age and I don't think their, their work should be judged by their age, whether too young or too old. I mean, great material is great material. And another thing about this business is, is great personalities. You know, like people want to work with people who they like. So 
if, if a person is is 18 years old and pleasant and really enjoyable to be around and has a great piece of material, you know, they're going to have a leg up uh, over somebody who's like crotchety and angry all the time and just miserable to be around because it's, it's a collaborative business and people want to work with people that are, you know, likable. And at the end of the day, we're not hearing cancer over here. We're making TV shows and movies and it's, we're all very, very fortunate to be able to do this for a living. So, you know, take some joy in that. And I think people don't want to be around people who are unhappy and miserable. So I think personality and talent is way more important than, than age. Right. That's great. Great to hear. And voice, you had mentioned it just a few minutes ago mm -hmm. uh, in terms of writer. Everyone's looking for a writer's voice mm -hmm. uh, and it's completely subjective, obviously, but at the same time, it's, there's aspects of it that are not meaning usually when somebody has it has that voice and it's undeniable everyone can see it but yeah. what is voice and and how can you define or quantify it for those emerging writers so that they know that they're on the right track sure well, that's that's a very 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 good question and i don't probably have a very very good answer for it but no one I does can try. <laughs> yeah. i can certainly try um I think voice is uh, an element of authenticity in your writing, um, not trying to emulate someone else. Like, I can't tell you how many scripts I've read that are just, I won't say ripoffs, but clones of like Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Tarantino does what Tarantino does because it's his unique style of writing and his unique style of directing. Um, you know, being able to write what you know, writing, writing your own unique point of view. And I, I can give you some examples from some clients I represent who, who I can point to their voices, right? So I represent this incredible LGBTQ writer who is um, from the South, from rural the South. And her voice, like when you read her script, you can just tell it's, uh, it's Southern Gothic. It's, it's, you know, it's amazing. I've got this um, upper level gay writer uh, who is from the Outer Banks of, of uh, North Carolina and he, when you talk to him, he is so funny and so dry and so sarcastic. And when you read his writing and read his characters, all of that comes through in his writing. And it's just incredible to see on the page. Um, you know, Joe Henderson, who's, who's my showrunner on Lucifer, Joe's writing is so fun and just so enjoyable. And it, it's who he is as a person. If you meet Joe, he's so generous and giving and kind and fun his writing is, is very, uh, very much like that. You know, Jim Campolongo, who I just signed a couple of weeks ago through Joe, he's got this great voice. He, he, he like can, can write really great muscular writing. And uh, you just, if you know Jim and you read his writing, it comes across in his writing. Um, and I think that's what people talk about in terms of, of voice. I don't think you have to try hard to like do something wholly original and, and break the mold and like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think you have to be Tarantino. Your voice is who you are as a person and your unique, authentic point of view on life and the experiences you've had to, to make you the person you are. And being able to draw from those things and putting it on paper for, for somebody else to read. Um, I think that's what really sets people apart is, is ones who can do that um, and ones who can't. And I think the people who can do that uh, really succeed in this business. Like, I'm not saying people who don't. 
uh, aren't, aren't able to do that, don't succeed, because a lot of people do, and there's a lot of need for, for writers who can tell a story and, and just are really great with structure and run a room and be efficient in, in that. So um, I don't think it's necessary to have that. But for me, when I'm looking for something, that's what I really gravitate towards. Somebody who I can read that is just, one, is a great person, and two, just has something unique about their writing. Yeah. No, that's 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 great. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got a few listener questions I wanted to run by you. Sure. Um, the first, Farzin asked, uh, for a writer of a specific genre, is it better to approach a manager that has only clients of that specific genre, which I don't know if that exists, but or a manager who has a mixture of clients? And second, with all the Zoom meetings during COVID-19 days, are the managers seeing the geographical element, uh, in parentheses, place of residence, less important of a factor for taking screenwriters into consideration in the future? Uh, both really good questions. Um, I think if you write a very specific genre, uh, you probably don't want to be in a place that solely represents that genre because you're just going to be another cog in the machine, right? Like. You want to have somebody who can diversify and also just because like maybe you write horror movies or horror tv shows maybe four years from now you want to write a romantic comedy you know it's like i, I wouldn't look at something and try to one i wouldn't pigeonhole yourself and two i wouldn't want to uh, have somebody represent me that only did one type of thing um and then in terms of geographic location i think it depends on which part of the business you're looking at so the TV business, if you want to be a TV writer, I think it's kind of imperative that you're in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. There are some writer rooms that exist in New York, but it's much, much smaller. Um, right now, we're, everybody's doing like Zoom rooms and, and things, but I don't think that's going to last very long. I, I, I think once the world goes back to normal, whether it's three months or two years, ultimately people are going to gravitate to having physical writer's rooms again. Um, but feature films, I mean, I've got clients that live in Georgia. I've got clients that live in, in Australia. I've got clients that live in London. Um, I have a client that lives in Texas. So I think with features, it's way less important where you live mm -hmm. because you can do Zoom pitches um, from far away. You don't have to physically be in a writer's room to, to break story with people. Um, so, yeah, I, I think physical location is less important when you're writing movies, but I do think of, it's kind of important when it, when it comes to TV shows. With that said, for the next year, maybe two years, maybe it won't be. And I could be completely wrong in that maybe people are like, well, we don't want to have to drive in L.A. traffic to go to a writer's room every day when we can just do this over Zoom and be much more efficient and stay at home. So maybe, maybe eventually the world uh, gravitates towards that. But uh, I, I personally think that physical writer's rooms are still going to be a thing in TV for years to come. Right. No, I, I agree. I agree. There's something about that physical presence, even if they meet three times a week instead of five so that writers can, yeah. you know, yeah, I think... once in a while. Um, the next question, Ramya asked, what makes an ending to a screenplay satisfying to you? <laughs> That's good. Um, I think TV and features, again, are two different things. Um, for a feature film, I like to see things wrapped up. I don't like to see a lot of holes in the story. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a lover of the hero's journey, seeing somebody like go through some trials and tribulations and then coming out and being the hero in the end and, 
and fixing things. But, not, you know, that's not all movies we make. Um, I think just having a nice, uh, a nice ending, not leaving a lot of questions is something that's important. In TV, though, that's not necessarily the case. In TV, I think if you're writing a great, if you're writing a pilot, having a cliffhanger and an ending is not a bad thing. Um, I, I think most networks and streamers are gravitating towards more serialized content, which means that, you know, it plays over a longer period of time as opposed to, you know, the, the old close one, close ended procedurals where you wrap up a case every week. There's still some of that out there. And um, I think there'll always be some of that out there, but I do think in TV, you can leave an ending open and, uh, and people will gravitate towards it. I will say if you're going to pitch a TV show and you've got the pilot script and it's open ended, I do think a network is going to want to know what the end game is in season one and then for the entire series. I think there was a time, and I don't want to, want to say anything negative about uh, the amazing people who ran Lost, but you know, Lost didn't really seem to know what the hell they were going to do at the end of the show. Right. And I think a lot of people got burned on that. So I think most networks and buyers want to know that there's some kind of end in, in place or at least an idea of what that ending may be you know, at the end of season one, at the end of season three, at the end of season five, whatever your series might be. Um, but yeah, I hope that answered the question uh, satisfactory. I think so. Um, Dimitri asked, definitely would love to hear the standard questions about querying. Do you, what do you look at at query letters? Uh, do you look at query letters? Uh, what should a query letter look like? And any other advice uh, he may have on that topic? Um, I, I don't look at a lot. I occasionally do. Um, generally, if I see something that, that sparks my interest, I'll forward it to one of my executives to take a look at. Mm -hmm. Then we send out a submission release agreement because you never know if if, there, if we've already read something that's similar or, you know what I mean, like maybe one of our clients has something they're working on. So we always have to send a submission release agreement. For me, um, because I'm so scattered and, and I'm a little all over the place, I like to see something short and sweet. So quick, you know, don't don't you don't have to be fancy and come up with all these like flowery words and, and like try to be clever in, in your email. Um, I think it's simply, Hey, here's a query. Here's something I wrote. Here's what it's like. Here's the, the two sentence log line. I'd love to send it to you. You know, and then maybe put, here's a little bit about me in there as well. Um, but don't send like a, a long, you know, uh, don't send a ton of prose in an email that's not broken up by paragraphs. If, if it can't fit on a small window when you're looking at an email, it's too long. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would limit it to, you know, most people like me or, and agents and managers are unbelievably busy. You know, we, we have, we try to make, you know, I try to make 50 to a hundred calls a day. I, I get upwards of sometimes a thousand emails a day. So you want to cut through, you want to be fast. You want to make sure that it's seen. I, a little trick I would say is don't put the word query in your subject line because <laughs> a lot of people are just going to hit delete immediately. Um, you know, try to come up with something that will make them open the email. It's so like, hey, checking in or um, maybe something like the name of the script uh, or just like, you know, your name, you know, something, something really quick, something sweet. Don't again, don't write query because people will just delete that. And I'm guilty of that as well. And uh, what sort of contests it says, what sort of contests does Stan look at? Um, you know, we kind of look at all of them. So there's an, a magazine called Ink Tip, I believe, that uh, that our executives work with and sometimes get material uh, from the people who run that magazine. There's 
uh, festivals like Sundance has an amazing writer's lab. We've gotten clients out of that. Um, what else? Honestly, anytime the, the Nichols Fellowship is great. Anytime you can get, you, you can point to something and say, hey, I won this contest, you know, it, it's going to be helpful um, because basically it not only allows you to grab the representative's attention, but the the representative is immediately going to be like, okay, well, I've got something I can talk about and sell this person on. So if I'm calling Warner Brothers and, and pitching a project or pitching the client for, for a show or pitching, you know, a project, I can say, hey, by the way, they won these five, you know, festivals or they won these five um, contests. So it shows that you can actually write. So I think anytime you can win a contest, it's helpful. Um, and to try to go after all of them, try and, and except for the ones that try to make you pay an astronomical entry fee, I'm not a big fan of that. But mm -hmm. blacklist is important, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, but also I, I understand, like as, as a starting out writer, you don't want to spend a lot of money and and apply to a million different things, and I wouldn't advise that either. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's a couple of things that are really great. The, most of the studios have writers programs. So ABC, Disney has a fellowship. They actually pay the writer, I want to say like $75,000 to be in the program. I, Warner Brothers has the Warner Brothers Workshop, which is incredible. CBS has a great workshop. NBC Universal has a phenomenal one. Nickelodeon has one. HBO has a fellowship. Um, so somebody who wants to be a writer, I would look into this. Marvel does as well. So I would, I would look into the places that um, make content you like and go on their website. Most of the information is on their website. Even Google, like, you know, does Sony have a writer's fellowship? I don't think Sony does, but you'll find out really quickly if they do or not. Um, you know, Fox Writers Initiative, you'll see the process to how to submit, what kind of stuff you need to submit for that. Because not only will that help you hone your skills, that'll help you get an agent and a manager. Because besides internal referrals, those are the few places we go actually looking for clients. Because you know that they've already gone through the studio vetting process and they've had to compete with hundreds of other applicants to be narrowed down to the top five to 10 to make it into those programs. Right. Going back to queries, uh, how big is personalization for you? Is it something you just skip to the log line and doesn't really matter? Or like if someone writes, oh, I'm also, I also went to Virginia Tech or congratulations on that Jerry Bruckheimer sale or you were awesome on Scribs and Scribes podcast. I listened to the whole thing because it, it's a great podcast. Um, does that matter to you? Not really, man. I mean, if somebody emailed me and said I went to Virginia Tech, I'd probably delete the email because they might know some dirt on me. But um, <laughs> no, I, I think I, I, it's not that important to me, honestly. I, I appreciate it. It shows that they've made some kind of effort. Mm -hmm. um, not, I don't know. It's, it's just not that necessary because at the end of the day, it's really good. Unless somebody's referred them, like, hey, gotcha. you know, so-and-so referred me. And don't lie about that because if somebody referred you, and you lied about it. Like you say, Joe Henderson told me to call you, and you heard me say Joe's name on this podcast. I'm going to check with Joe, and Joe's going to be like, I don't know who that person is, so it's, I've never spoken to him, right? So if somebody has actually referred you, then you should mention that in your subject line. Um, the personalization, you could say something like that, but it's not that important, to be honest. Um, I, I think the idea, the content is important, and then a little blurb. Um, yeah, I actually, I actually feel, I feel, I feel better when I when I don't have to read a lot of personalization, mm -hmm. um, just because it's you know time sensitive and and, and I don't touch people on their material and their ideas. 
as opposed to like, you know, what they know about me or something like that. Right. Any uh, final advice for the emerging writers and filmmakers out there? Um, honestly, for writers, I, I'd say write. For filmmakers, I'd say figure out ways to make content. Never before in the history of it, have there been tools at our disposal like there are now. People can go out with their iPhone and make a movie. People can go out with their iPhone and make a, make a TV show or a digital series um, and not have to spend a ton of money on it or maybe even any money on it. Um, a writer, you know, your greatest tool is, is writing. So write every day. Um, and then honestly, you're going to get knocked down and told no a thousand times. I, I believe me, I get told no a hundred times a day. It's still, and you know, prior to, to now, I mean, I, I've been told no hundreds of thousands of times, but you just have to be able to, to get back up and, and failure is part of the process and failure helps you get to the success and just don't give up on something you're really passionate about. You really want to do stick with it. You know, I mean, there's, there's times when you, you're going to be like, why am I doing this? You know, why am I sleeping on my friend's couch and I can't afford my rent? Like it, believe me, I was there. I, and, and most people I know went through some version of that. Uh, but if it's something you really want to do and you're passionate about, uh, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in this business. You know, now more than ever, there's more opportunity to create content within the Hollywood system. There's, you know, I don't even know how many networks and streamers there are out there anymore. And uh, they're looking for movies and TV shows and uh, miniseries. There's, there's just podcasts as well. Like go make a great podcast about your idea if you're a writer and try to get some recognition that way. Write short stories and try to get them published. Um, write a play and try to get it produced. All of those things are steps towards success. Um, so yeah, my, my, my best advice is don't give, up, don't give up and continue to work hard and try to find uh, ways to get your content made. That's great advice. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today and, and chatting with us, Stan. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Kevin. Thank you for having me, man. I, I appreciate you reaching out. And are you going to be able to stick around for a few more minutes for the unscripted after show? Yeah, absolutely. I can do that. Great. Um, so be sure to follow Stan on Twitter. It's at Stan Spry. That's S-T-A-N-S-P-R-Y. And you can also follow the cartel at, at Cartel HQ. Um, and as always, thank you guys for listening. Remember to keep writing and we'll see you next time.